Last week, at the end of the laments over Babylon's fall, we saw in the text a call or a summons to worship, which anticipated and is fulfilled in our text this morning. So there, last week in Revelation 18, the summons was this. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And we have the answer to that call to worship in the heavenly liturgy, which is on display in our text this morning from Revelation 19. The world in the form of its political leaders, its kings, in the form of its business leaders, its merchants, laments Babylon's fall. The saints and the host of heaven celebrate it. And as we see here, they celebrate it without regret. They celebrate it with unalloyed gladness and joy. And so we're going to look at this text from Revelation 19 under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. Praise for the judgment. Praise for the coming wedding. And then a blessing and an admonition. So first, praise for the judgment. John, the apostle, begins in verse 1 with, After this. This after this means after the demise of Babylon, which he just narrated in chapter 18. After that he heard what seems to be a roar of a great multitude in heaven. And again, this sort of language has appeared in Revelation multiple times. Our minds should go back to the great, great throne scene in chapters 4 and 5 and to the saints who are worshiping there. Or to the great throng in heaven in chapter 7 that was said to come out of the great tribulation. Right, This is the voice of a people here, a loud voice, who've endured the, the wrath of the empire, the beast's wrath. And they've redis, re, resisted the seductions, the cultural seductions of Babylon. And now in response to this call to celebrate and rejoice, they're crying out, literally in the text, they are shouting. So it's raucous. And they begin in the middle of verse 1 with Hallelujah. Interestingly, this passage here in Revelation 19 is the only place in the New Testament, the only place where this standard Old Testament acclamation of praise is used. It's the only time the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament. And it's used here four times. It means praise to Yahweh. And here it stands in stark contrast to the laments and the tears of the kings and the merchants and the traders. It's deeply significant that the word hallelujah continues to get evoked here. In one sense, we could say that all of the praise and the warfare and the praise of the warrior God in the book of Psalms leads here. And Yahweh is praised in the text by declaring from the heavenly multitude that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I want to say a few things about each of these. Salvation here means victory or triumph. It does not mean what it means on the lips of the average evangelical Christian. I've made a decision for Jesus and therefore I'm going to heaven. 
That, of course, is true, and it's part of the meaning of the word. But the word is much richer, much more full, much more public, much more political, much more cosmic than that. And it would do the church a great deal of good to recover some of the richness simply of some of its vocabulary words, which have been thinned down and made tinny. This is one of them. Salvation means wholeness or restoration or triumph. And salvation belongs to our God, the saints in heaven say. Right? There's no act of salvation traditionally understood here, right? There's no altar call. Nobody's singing just as I am. There's no decisions for Jesus in the text. And the whole heavenly throng is shouting, salvation belongs to our God. Because it's his open public vindication over against his foes. It means victory, and in particular, it means victory through judgment. That's what the cross is. Victory through judgment. This final judgment manifests then the glory of God. Salvation and glory belong to God. It's, it, show, it's a, it shows something of his intrinsic splendor of his radiance, of his iridescence. It is him shining forth. God does not do something new when he comes to judge the heavens and the earth. He just shines forth. He just unveils his beauty and his glory and his splendor. And some, some, for some, that is a time of great joy. For others, it's a time of terror. But the same God's glory is unveiled. And so, and this is brought about by his power. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So it's a celebration from this heavenly throng of God's infinite perfections and his creative achievement. There's no getting around, I think, the use of the word power here. I mean, it's not raw power, to be sure. It's not abusive power. But it's important to see this. That the, and this is one of the many, many benefits of the book of Revelation. The salvation that was wrought in naked, battered, broken weakness at the cross. That salvation comes to its eschatological, its eternal fulfillment and fruition in this display of power. At the end of history, the judgment of the church's Babylonian foes. So in this sense... Our salvation, though sure, is still future. There's not enough of this in the church either. This sense that salvation is is still future. It is suspended. It waits on this judgment. You are not saved in any full sense until this occurs. And an acute sense of this is important to the Christian church. An acute sense of the vast, towering panorama of this future triumph and victory of God is key to the Christian hope. And where it's absent, you get this big sense of, I'm saved now, I'm saved now, and there's this little footnote thing that says, I'll die and go to heaven and it'll all be fine later. But in the New Testament, the the proportions are different. Right? What does the New Testament say about your salvation? It says it's, you have a down payment. You don't have the whole house. 
You just have a down payment. You have a foretaste. You have a little bit now, and there is stretched out before you this enormous, infinite magnitude called final victory and triumph and salvation. And yet our whole vocabulary, all of our instincts, reverse this. There is a sense in which our salvation is profoundly future. And where that is absent, well, then the book of Revelation holds not much interest. Why read the book of Revelation if your final hope is dying and going to heaven? Who needs it? So, salvation and glory and power belong to God. And we get the ground. We get the ground for this hallelujah in verse 2. God's judgments here are true and just. There is no vindictiveness. There is no meanness in God. There's no distemper in God. There's something of the very rectitude, the just ordering of his wisdom, the truth of his very being, which is unveiled in these judgments. You know, we know God, in a sense, through a veil now, darkly, through weak signs, words from weak preachers, bread and wine. We don't see him face to face. When these judgments are unveiled, then there's something of his truth and his justice which is manifested to sight. And you should desire that, right? We should be oriented or bent toward this. This is why the saints under the altar are crying out for vindication. The martyrs, earlier in the book, they call God holy and true. Not only does your salvation, in a sense, hang on these events, the truth of who God is hangs on this coming vindication of the saints. If God doesn't do this, He isn't God. He is not true. And so this this truth, this justice, this integrity, are seen in the text or described vividly as He condemned the great prostitute. Babylon. This is the reason the whole host of heaven is shouting hallelujah. She corrupted, literally literally the text is she destroys the earth with her immorality or her adulteries. Again, her immorality and adultery here is her economic and religious idolatry, which we saw at length in chapter 17 and 18. So I won't rehearse that here. But it's a picture first and foremost, not completely, not exhaustively, but first and foremost of the Roman Empire, right, in its economic gluttony and in its idolatry and in its persecution of the saints. Because the text goes on to say, in judging her, God has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So again, to get some hopeful clarity on this, we show kindness to our enemies. We turn the other cheek. Paul says that we do this so that we might leave room for the vengeance of God. This is this part that is always left out of the turning the other cheek. Yes, we turn the other cheek. But we do so to leave room for God's action. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. 
Vengeance is not our business. That cannot be stressed enough. Revelation makes it quite clear throughout the book that you and I are called to follow Jesus' pattern, the Lamb's earthly pattern of meek witness unto death. We conquer by being conquered. We conquer by being conquered. That's the wonderful thing about Christianity. Killing it tends to make it grow. But this does not mean, this does not mean that vengeance is dirty business. And here we mean, by vengeance, again, we simply mean equitable justice. It must be attended to. And it shall be attended to by the Lord God. You know the one who attends to this vengeance? It's that self-same lamb who gave himself up freely. Even Jesus is not an eschatological pacifist. The pacifist portrait of Jesus is half right. But when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, he's not going to say, hey, you guys, whatever you like's fine. I'm here to continue turning the other cheek. The church has always confessed that the self-same one who gave himself up comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And it's precisely because this is so that the martyrs under the altar, these are the slain nonviolent witnesses. Now think of these saints. They are in a, a state of heightened holiness in the immediate presence of God. And what are they praying? They pray without squeamishness or without any sense of dissonance. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you, not us, until you, avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth. It's an astonishing passage. I know I've referred to it quite a bit in this series. I mean, imagine being invited, sneaking into the back of a heavenly prayer meeting, and being conducted there and expecting to hear something. What would your expectations be? Would it be that the, the, Christian, the band of Christian martyrs are praying for vengeance? They expect, they long for, and they pray unceasingly for Jesus to exercise holy justice and vengeance. And get this again, to, to repeat, they know that the whole of our eternal coming glory depends on it. And again, again, there's a certain sensibility that the early church had that is completely lost on moderns, that your glory, your transfiguration depends on God doing this. As does, of course, there being any justice or meaning anywhere in the cosmos. They have already died, these saints. They are already in heaven. They are face-to-face with God, and they are not satisfied. They are yearning for this scene at the back end of the book of Revelation. You have a loved one who's passed on? They're listening to these prayers, and they're amening these prayers. And they're not finished. And their yearnings and their desires are not finished. 
The church waits for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. And so the next movement in this heavenly liturgy is in verse 3. Once more they cried out a second time now, Hallelujah. And the reason for this one is that the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Her judgment is irreversible. And her smoke is a kind of, it's a kind of ghastly counterpoint to the smoky prayers of the saints. The prayers go up of the saints go up like incense or smoke before God's throne. But the judgment of Babylon perpetually goes up like smoke as well. And in verse 4, the heavenly hosts join this litany of praise. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, we saw earlier, they're angelic representatives of the whole church. 24 elders, 12 Old Testament, 12 New Testament. Four living creatures represent the whole created magnitude, north, south, east, and west. They fall down here. They worship God who's seated on the throne, and they say, Amen, for the third time, Hallelujah. This Amen is an angelic ratification of the praise of the saints. They're in complete agreement, these immaterial beings, with the sentiments expressed by the host of the redeemed in verses 1 through 3. So that's praise for the judgment. The second point here is praise for the coming wedding. Verse 5, this is a a, a renewed call to praise. A voice comes with divine authority from the throne now, from the throne of God. And this voice says, so in the middle of the liturgy, there's another summons. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Again, continue the liturgy. And the whole church responds in verse 6. And John hears again what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. This is the opening multitude that we saw in verse 1. Again, the praise here is thunderous. Loud shouting. It now reaches a crescendo. It says it's like the, the roar of many waters. This is how the book of Revelation opened in chapter 1. John has a vision of the risen Christ. He's a prisoner in Patmos, a Roman prisoner. He has a vision of Christ transfigured, and when that Christ speaks to him, it's like the sound of a roar of many waters. So the coming of God in judgment is answered by this thunderous praise. And they say for the fourth time in the text, Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The force of this expression, the Lord God Almighty reigns, is the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. So it's very important to get this. It coheres with what we've said throughout here. This is not a statement of God's general sovereignty over history. It's a statement that he's established his eschatological, eternal, everlasting kingship. God reigns in this context as a direct consequence of the judgment on Babylon. So again, we could could say it this way. We could say God is sovereign, but that sovereignty is in some ways veiled, not fully manifest. We will begin to see it in its full scope when these events transpire. Then he will be the king who has finally deposed all pretenders and all rivals to his throne. Now they prance about in the earth, largely. 
And so the chorus then continues with a wedding announcement. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. This is another way we know we're at the end. With the kingdom, the establishment of God's reign, comes a wedding. This is very important because this is the fulfillment of the whole story of creation. Creation which began with a wedding. The whole of Israel, her turbulent bridal history, leads here. God, Jonathan Edwards said, created the world so that the Spirit could prepare a bride for his son. All of history is nuptial history. We don't know what weddings are because we don't have this theology anymore. Creation, redemption, consummation, it is nuptial history. And it ends in the intimacy of communion between the bride and her husband. And thus, when this judgment comes, you get a summons to a wedding. You get a wedding invitation. Two things I want to note here. First, throughout the Old Testament... It is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Exodus. He is Israel's husband. Here, it is the Lamb, which is another of Revelation's testimonies to the deity, to the godness of Jesus Christ. It's done without artifice. John's not trying to argue for the deity of Jesus. It just oozes out everywhere. Second, we should note this again. Even though Babylon is first and foremost Rome, she's not only Rome. Babylon must finally reappear at the end in some different guise. Right? We can think of the Soviet Union as a Babylon. Right? There, there have been historical Babylons, tyrannies. Right? And there will be another one, because when this final Babylon falls, the wedding supper of the Lamb is immediately at hand. It's important to get that. History is nuptial, but there are false brides. And they must be removed for the bride of Christ to come forth in in her full splendor. So verse 7. The marriage having come, the bride has made herself ready. This is an announcement that the bride is about to enter, but she doesn't actually enter until chapter 21. Her entrance is delayed. Notice also in this text how easily, how seamlessly John puts together the obedience of the faithful church and the free grace of God. She made herself ready. You have to make yourself ready for this wedding. But she did so, the text says, because the linen was granted or gifted or given to her to wear. The linen that you're going to be clothed in on the last day, are your own righteous deeds. You should make yourself ready. And at the same time, that linen is fully a gift of God's grace. Right? So grace does not obliterate the need for obedience. It underwrites it. It sustains it. She has made herself ready. Now think about what this would mean in the context of this book. It's a a very sweet irony for the Bride of Christ that it's precisely her warfare in history with Babylonian and tyrannical forces that is the chief instrument of preparing her for the wedding. 
God is prepping you for this wedding. And he's doing it in the most difficult things in your life. It is always the church's warfare which is readying her for this feast. In the nitty-gritty places that she'd rather not be, she's being purified. So this linen is expressly called, expressly called the righteous deeds of the saints. So loyalty then to the bridegroom. We've seen this throughout. This is what prepares one for the wedding. All obedience in the Christian life is nuptial obedience. All history is nuptial history. All obedience is nuptial obedience. So the third and final point is this admonition. The angel tells John to write a beatitude, meaning a statement that begins with words like, blessed are. There are seven, of course, beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth one. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Notice this, since you are in the church of Christ. The church is both the bride, and she also gets an invitation to the wedding. It's a strange thing, right? You're the bride. You don't expect a wedding invitation to show up at your house. But here, the bride is the bride, and she gets invited. And here, John gives us a new idea. There They're invited, we're invited, to the wedding supper. With the kingdom comes the wedding. With the wedding comes the feast. Right. So so the exuberant, think of the, the exuberant, the exultant praise anticipates the exuberance of a wedding feast. The coming wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's a feast that we have a foretaste of, an advanced taste of, in the Lord's Supper. Often we can't put together these things in our minds, why we do this and why this is important and why that's so important. But we can see here, this is an important text, because it tells us there is the deepest kind of kinship between that sacrament and the end of history and the destiny of the church. That sacrament doesn't just look backwards to what Jesus did. It looks forward to the church's everlasting destiny in glory at the wedding supper of that slain, risen, and coming lamb. So, in verse 10, we have this very strange incident. John falls down to worship the angel. And you think, all right, well, to err is human, perhaps. But the the, the weird thing is, mysteriously... He's going to do this again later in the book. The great John the Apostle falls down twice in a matter of two chapters or so and worships an angel and has to get rebuked. It it is an overwhelming heavenly scene. And there may be a kind of warning here, a kind of polemic against angel worship. But it certainly functions to show us that, you know, if John can do this, we can as well. Idolatry is an easy thing. It's easy to worship Worship shiny things, especially if those shiny things have a religious aura about them. But the angel rebukes him and tells him to worship God alone. He does that with those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. True worship, then, is holding to the testimony of Jesus. That's revelation in a nutshell. 
If someone were to say to you, what's Revelation in a nutshell? Well, one, 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 one way to do a one-sentence summary is we're called to hold to the testimony or the legal witness that Jesus made in the earth as a martyr and now as a risen king communicated to John. That witness of Jesus, that testimony, we should hold to it. So what does that mean? Well, there are, there are at least three things it means for you and for me. To hold to the testimony of Jesus means to cleave to it. And we have it, it means to cleave to Christ and to, the, and to the Christ who is revealed in Holy Scripture. It secondly means to confess it. And thirdly, it means to conform to it. The testimony of Jesus, the text says, is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus' own testimony, given in the earth by the Spirit, is a form of prophetic witness. And you, who testify to Jesus, are prophetic witnesses to the prophetic witness. I often think that the church would help itself in its own self-image if it understood that it was called to put this mantle on. In a sense, the, church, the whole church is a company of prophets in Jesus the prophet. So I'm going to conclude with two very brief applications, one of which is not new. The first one. The, the text is yet another reminder. It's a sober reminder that people are united to one of two women in history either to Babylon or to the bride. In the language of Proverbs, there's lady folly and there's lady wisdom. And thus there are two destinies, judgment or the wedding feast. So across our lives, as a whole, we're not, we're not talking about any isolated or discrete event here, but as patterns, we're either fornicating or we're clothing ourselves with bright and pure linen. All ethics is nuptial ethics. Everybody is destined and determined by a wedding feast or the absence thereof. Second, second application here is we should be at ease or at home in both sections of the text. I suspect perhaps we're not. To some extent, that's understandable. And by both sections, I mean praise for the judgment and praise for the coming wedding. I mean, who doesn't like weddings? Everybody's comfortable with that. But without the praise for the judgment, the second easily becomes sentimental and romantic. That's why so much of Christian history is uh, cluttered up with tawdry, maudlin, sentimental uh, projections about heaven and going to heaven, and the like. And yet you come to a text like this, and you realize that's just that's not the way John shapes his vision of the future. Without praise for the judgment, praise for the coming wedding becomes drippy. You can see this, by the way, by asking, as I, as someone who prepares a liturgy, has occasion to do, by asking how many hymns in the Trinity hymnal Answer to or reflect these judgment doxologies. Remember we called this passage, these passages in Revelation are called judgment doxologies. The two words don't even go together in in our minds. They're judgment doxologies. 
these raucous celebrations, which litter the book of Revelation. Take a look through that red hymnal, see how many of them you can find. Not many. There seems to be a rule among uh, Christian songwriters and hymn book editors, which is, the rule is, if it offends modern sensibilities, it gets skipped, or at least muted. And Revelation is a needed corrective here. The Psalms do this as well, but Revelation is a needed corrective. Psalms do it as well. Psalm 104, for instance, ends by juxtaposing the two themes in our text. And it does it without wincing and with its own hallelujah. Here, listen to this from Psalm 104. I will sing praise to the Lord while I have my being. I will rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Hallelujah. Well, that's not nice. It's very mean. Very mean. The psalmist apparently lacked a sensitive modern editor. Now, I'm not really trying to be funny. This doesn't mean that both strands are equal. Or that the judgment strand of praise will go on forever. It will not. It is right, profoundly right, that the church is much more deeply, much more fundamentally oriented toward the joy of the coming wedding. That's where scripture puts the accent. But we do need in our historical pilgrimage the other strand as well. If you're a Christian in Syria, you need the Assad regime to fall. And to, not, to act as if a person doesn't need that because you're a comfortable white intellectual in America, safely ensconced away in suburbia, is wicked. It's only comfortable people who can say, oh, I don't like this vengeance stuff. It's not people whose mothers and daughters have been raped. It's not people whose lands have been pillaged and burned. It's not these martyrs. It's comfortable Western elites. I don't like this. Well, wait till your city's burned and then see if you want God to bring justice or vengeance or not. Because if he doesn't, then we have a meaningless cosmos and we can all dispense with everything. In the historical pilgrimage of the church, you have to have this. Yes, it is not where the stress is. It is not the central thing. But it it cannot be eliminated until the end. Until the dead are raised and until the past is rectified. And so this text then addresses you as those who are among the bride, among the called, among ones who are invited yet to the feast. And that means you have to sing hallelujah both for the coming destruction of Babylon and, more profoundly, for the coming feast. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.